This morning, I'm going to be preaching from Galatians chapter 2 on how the gospel is something that ever expands and needs to expand continuously in and through our hearts and lives. So please turn with me to Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 to 21. Here is God's word for us this morning. Paul writes, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, you have given incredible grace, and I pray that this morning we would not only see, but be able to savor, to consider and have those truths deepened in our hearts and minds, so that the way that we live, the words that we speak, the lives that we show, they're consistent with your grace. And that we get to see the gospel, your precious gospel put on display in, in expanding ways through our lives and the community that desperately needs you. Holy Spirit, be at work here. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you've caught the last couple of sermons, Robert's been preaching through Romans chapter 10 and he took a little uh, wonderful uh, tangent to unpack the beautiful passage of, of Romans 10 where Paul's saying, and, and those who need to hear the gospel in order to believe, how will they hear unless someone is sent? And how will they be sent unless somebody sends them to preach? And the whole point there is to, to encourage all of us, to encourage us as a community to, to be able to preach and be the link in those chains that God uses to share the good, incredibly freeing news of of the gospel of Jesus Christ with with others. And I want to continue in in a part of that detour and help to drive home where the links begin, where the the truth of the gospel deeply impacts us, me and and y'all, so that it can be put on display in ever-expanding ways for our community and the world around us. And so I've, I've titled this an expanding gospel. And I want to look really at three points that I think Paul is, is trying to get his audience in, in Galatia to see. And I think it's ever more significant for us today. So first I want to look at why not to presume the gospel. 
Then second, how not to assume the gospel. And third, the dangers of consuming the gospel. We don't want to presume, assume, or consume this beautiful gospel of grace. So first of all, we see in the very first verse we read here that Paul here in verse 15, he's contrasting the group he's in of of Jews uh, that were by birth and the comparison then is to the the rest of all of y'all, the Gentiles, the others who are then sinners. Now, this is a really important thing that we need to understand in the context of who Paul is and what his audience is understanding, and then, then we can see how that applies to us today. So I'm not, don't worry, I'm not calling myself a Jew and y'all sinners. That's not what I said. But here, Paul is, is including himself both in uh, ancestry. He is a Jew by birth. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, and, and that, but he's also including as a Jew who was a law keeper the civil and ceremonial law. He explains that in Galatians and other places, that he did all the things the law told him to do. He met all the righteous requirements throughout his life. He's done everything. That high standard, he's checked all the boxes. And what that helps us see is that his mentality as a righteous, law-keeping, pharisaical Jew meant that they could compare themselves, their standard of righteousness that they had earned by works, they could compare themselves to then every other person. All the rest of the world was in that category of Gentile, therefore other, therefore sinner. The problem here, what I want this to help us be warned of, is the problem of presuming the gospel. And this happens in two different directions. Paul is saying, if I presume that simply by birth I'm in the in-group, or if I presume because I've met this requirement that I've stayed in the in-group, that that, is, that presumption is then found to be false. It's not how the law was intended to work. It didn't achieve anything for us. It didn't meet that standard because righteousness, he says, is not by the law. Cannot be achieved that way. At the same time, he says that we don't want to also presume whether I'm in the in-group by birth or by any other way. I don't want to presume that if I just do enough, if I just define myself as good enough, either in what I think I've done or especially in how I compare to others, then I'm good then I can meet the standard that I've now set for myself. Both of those, I think, are dangerous paths, and we see that all over our world. I remember when I was uh, in student teaching and learning how the, the wonderful rigors of high school education worked in the public school that I got to teach in, there was so much uh, achievement-driven and performance-based, even before there was uh, social promoting, Right? There was, you had to earn and work and strive, and then, if you met the standard, you were good. And we see that throughout our society. There's so many avenues of life, whether it's a school or a career or evaluations or even in our, our family, even in our neighborhood, our reputations. Did you cut your yard enough? 
How many times did you wash your car? Are you the one leaving your garbage can out overnight? All those maybe silly standards that my acceptability with some group, maybe not automatically with God, but maybe how I see myself based on this group, is then the standard that I can compare how good I'm doing on a given level. The problem here is that that's, that's a misguided approach, a misdirection to come into an understanding of the gospel. One of the most incredible examples of this is when Paul calls, I'm sorry, when Jesus calls the first disciple who is Peter in Luke chapter 5. And Luke is is one of those that loves the details, and he's in a lot of those details, and he paints a pretty good picture for us. So maybe go back and read Luke chapter 5 later, but he's walking, Jesus is walking along the seashore, the Sea of Galilee, and Peter's been all, all night, and he is an expert fisherman. He knows his lake, he knows his boat, he knows his gear, he's mending the nets because it's been a long, exhausting night, they haven't caught a single minnow. I don't even know if that's what you catch anymore. But they haven't caught anything nothing and they pull up the boat and jesus is like hey peter he calls him simon go back and and cast your net on the other side of the boat and he's got to be thinking okay that's the most ridiculous thing because underneath the boat the water connects like it's all the water like there's like this the good side of the boat water and then the bad side water okay that was silly but you get it he's he's got to be thinking you're out of your mind sir I know fishing, I know this lake, I know my boat, I know my gear. It ain't happening. And especially not now. That's not the good time to fish. I've been out all night. That's the good time to fish. We've tried it. But Peter doesn't presume. He doesn't say, dude, I know better. I've been working my whole life for this. I've, I've, if it were there to earn, I would have earned it. He simply pushes his boat back from shore says well this guy must know something throws his nets overboard and what he sees what he gets to learn and experience and how that shapes the entire rest of his life had to have been incredible and his response you remember his response his response is dude we're inviting you back on our next fishing trip no i'm sorry he doesn't say dude i apologize he doesn't say This was amazing. You're our new fishing partner. He's shocked. He's convicted. He's cut to the heart and says, Lord, you can't be near me because I'm a sinful man. Now, at some point, we got to go, okay, Peter's not seminary trained. He didn't get that course of how the connection between Jesus' authority and our unrighteousness works and and the sinful depravity of man. He's got to make that connection somewhere between this guy has authority over fish and the water that I just tried to fish all night and I got nothing. And now he causes that abundance of fish to happen. Peter's making that connection. This guy is not only in charge of all of creation, his authority extends to even a righteousness that's beyond my sin. How can I be in his presence? He's connecting the dots of what he knew of Scripture, not presuming that 
I've already tried this, so how could I earn it any other way? I hope that's a good example because what we see if we approach this text or any other understanding of the gospel is if we presume that I bring a single thing to the table other than my sin. If we presume that, okay, I've been an expert, I've trained in my whole life for this, now, Jesus, you just need to help me out the last little bit. Or any of those other avenues. If we presume that our action leads to an identity, to our person being someone that Jesus would like enough to save, we are missing the incredible value, the great gift that grace really is. And then once we've received that, we can also presume upon, like be presumptive towards, okay, God, you gave me lots of grace. I get that. You saved me, but now I really better buckle my boots down and, you know, work harder to keep that. You got me here, but now I gotta, oh, I gotta take a lot of notes and I gotta do the right things and what if I do this and I might do that wrong? We can't presume upon that and, and that's kind of the, it's not a balance because they're not either ors, but Paul is warning us against those two directions of going with, in Romans uh, 5, 6, and 7, saying if you get grace, does that conclude? Do you presume upon that grace to conclude so that I can sin even more? There's lots of grace. It was free. Let's go this direction and even enjoy more sin. And he says, never. May it never be so. And on the other side, he says, well, if you think that you got grace because you did away with enough of your, uh, enough of your sin, if you fix yourself up enough to get to this good standard where God could put the gold seal of approval on you, then maybe I'm good and I don't have to worry about any of that. He also says, no, it's not how grace works. Grace is the truth that calls sin what it is so that you can see how Christ rightly dealt with it. So how is this a need for me and, and, and for us? Here, if we see ourselves in the category of on God's good side, either by birth or because we've shown up in the right building at the right time for the last umpteen years, or because we give to this right charity, or because we do this right volunteer thing, rather than see, I received a gift. God smiled on me because he looked at Jesus and said, yes, he is one of mine. If that's how I receive this gift, then that's how I get to continue to live in the same grace of our Savior. And how does that mean that I share the gospel any differently? Well, if I received a gift, not because of what I've done, not because of how I've earned, and if I've stayed in, if I've maintained that standard of righteousness also by the same gift of grace, then what message do I have to share to others? Not work harder, not be a good person, not show up at the right place at the right time. My message to them, the captivating glory of the gospel, is receive. Receive a gift. Let your hearts be opened and know that Christ is renewing and remaking and restoring and redeeming. And that's a beautiful thing. Our conversations might be a little bit different. It might be a little more listening. Where are they? 
How are things going? Where are they trying and are exhausted because they can't quite do enough? Good. Not good that they should stay there. Good, that's where the gospel might meet them. Where are they maybe comparing themselves to plenty of other ways and they can't ever measure up? Okay. Guess what? Your actions don't prove your identity anyways. We're going to get to that in a little bit in verse 20, but the, the beautiful message here is that the life you live in Christ isn't dependent on your actions. It's dependent on his finished work. So don't presume the gospel. We also want to see that this passage and Peter's life, how Jesus calls him, calls him out of trying on his own merits, his own way of doing things. Once he receives it, it also doesn't let us assume anything about it. It doesn't let us uh, start God's way and then finish or continue our way. The problem of, of assuming is thinking that, well, one definition says that it, we take or begin to have something that we don't yet receive. Now, this, I'm not saying that we don't rely on the trustworthiness of God. I'm not saying that we don't have our confidence in who God is and what he's done. But a lot of times, we get that backwards. And we, by extension, say, well, I need to do in order to be received. I need to uh, behave or act or work in order to have my identity confirmed, who I am confirmed, whether it's uh, evaluation, performance reports, uh, smiles by grandparents, whatever. And so that must be the same way that God smiles at me. Maybe I received the, the gift of the gospel to get an understanding of salvation, but I better keep working that out on my own. One example of this is, if you all have heard of, um, there's an interesting phenomenon in our society, and it's usually stereotypical of Westerners, so I am one, so I'm not just pointing the finger out there. Uh, It's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. Anybody heard of this before? Dunning-Kruger, okay. It's not the Dunder-Mifflin, that's a different effect, but it's the dunder Look it up later, it's not that funny anyway. The, the Dunning-Kruger effect, these two researchers that saw that on the, the, the scales of confidence and wisdom, uh, certain segments of, of society have more confidence than they really should based on their amount of wisdom. In other words, they think more highly of themselves than their knowledge really should allow them to. It's why... When I was an amateur snowboarder, I thought I could do everything. This is awesome, and ended up breaking my breaking my collarbone. That's I'm like I'm way better than I think I could. And I hear this like all the time on playgrounds. This you know sixth grader coming up to the monkey bars. All his friends are like, "Dude, you got this." He's like, "Yeah, I'm gonna pinky pull it, and then I'm gonna do three flips and a reverse ganger and catch it with my teeth. It'd be awesome." Like, no, please don't do that. For the love of dentures, don't do that. Okay, none, none, I don't think there are any six-year-olds except my seven-year-old in the room. So. But we, we think more of our abilities than we really should. And that's funny when it comes across in kids on the playground. But this is a little bit worrisome. 
in terms of knowledge of our Lord and Savior and what he has accomplished on our behalf in the gospel. Many, many statistical evaluations of the biblical literacy in our churches show this to be true. We think we know, we think we are living, we think we are showing more than we really get. We need this more. Hopefully that was under emphasis for effect. See, our problem with our culture is that our, sometimes the, the benefits, the comfort level, the ease and convenience kind of buffer the hard truths that we don't really get as much as we think we do. One of the first times I was teaching a, a student how to drive a stick shift, you look down at the pedals, usually you have the gas and the brake. Okay, we're good, I know, go and stop, right. You add that third pedal in, it's not just, oh, we'll figure that later. It's oh so crucial. If you don't know the difference between gas, brake, and clutch, you got some problems going on. And if you think you're just going to, you know, kind of wing it, and oh, you know, I, I can steer and I can go on the gas, there's going to be some problems there. Maybe that's a closer connection to the... Uh, the mindset of a six-year-old on the playground. But we, we, we buffer too many benefits. We cope all too easily. Uh, the Pharisees of Paul's day are, are doing the same thing only in terms of law, works, and righteousness. You see, they were chasing after the benefits, what they thought they were receiving because of their obedience, rather than realizing that the actual singular benefit was that you got presence of God, you got Christ, and then all those benefits flowed from there. If you're a Westminster Shorter Confession geek like I am, or you have the app on your phone, you can pull it up. I think it's like question number 90 or 91. Sorry, I should have that reference. You can ask me later. But there's a really helpful section that explains what do believers receive in the sacrament. So of all the means of grace that God has given us, all the ways to enjoy him through his incredible gifts, the, the two most uh, valuable of those being the Lord's Supper and, and baptism, the, the Shorter Catechism question answers, of, of all those, how do believers receive the benefits of those sacraments? The incredible thing is that the, the primary benefit that sometimes we hop, skip, and a jump over to get to all the other secondary stuff, like, I want my life to be better. I want this emotion to be softer. I want things to be more convenient. We forget that the main benefit, this catechism question drives it home, the main benefit, we believe, is Christ. We get united to him. We get to grow in him. We get to enjoy more of Christ. And, oh yeah, all those other really, really good, amazing, eternal things. I don't mean to demean any of those. But y'all, those are going to burn. And we're going to have the joys of heaven in Christ face to face for eternity. And that stuff's going to seem like it didn't even matter. The problem of assuming can actually be really, really spiritual. And I, I hesitate because, I, again, I don't want to project on you, but I think this would be benefited with a little bit of illustration. 
one of the most significant things that God used in my life was um, a young lady who is now my wife showing me and, sh- and sharing with me a beautiful aspect of forgiveness that captivated my heart deeply. And as I was sharing with her when, as a young, ridiculously ignorant, foolish man, sharing with her some of the things I've done, and I didn't know how she could ever forgive me, much less a, a heavenly father could possibly forgive me, and why that, that rut that I had gotten in and those, those habits that I had started and all of that, the person that I thought I was valued because of all that garbage, how could I ever get over that? And she said, you get forgiveness. And that doesn't mean that that stuff ever gets, the baggage gets wrapped up in your identity any longer. It's washed away. It's as far as the east is from the west. And when you get that grace, no longer does that define you. And that was, that took me months to understand. And that was a profound truth that I needed to hear that, that God used in a really significant way. Here's the problem if I assume that that was the same level that I always operated as a believer. I could either go into Romans 6 or Romans 7. Okay, I got that amazing forgiveness. How amazing and good was that? What's the problem with more sin? If forgiveness was that good, why don't I just creep back and fall back and slide back into those same habits and ruts? Or the other side, the only lopsided way that I might default thinking, my thinking into if Jesus is a vending machine of eternal forgiveness, what motivation is there for me to want more of Jesus, not solely the benefits of forgiveness? Both really, really blessings. So to be expanding the understanding and the experience, the living out of the gospel, I'm not projecting my experience on you, but I'm saying to see the gospel for what it is means there's good things in the Christian life. They're beautiful things. Forgiveness is incredible. Redemption is awe-amazing. It's awe-inspiring. It's heart exploding in some beautiful ways. That is not the new standard. There's even more. A few weeks ago, maybe a month ago, Robert was sharing, Pastor Robert was talking about how justification, we, we love and we value rightly how good justification is. It's not the end. It's the starting line of our Christian faith. Because once we're justified in Christ, we're seen as a child. We're now a son and daughter that gets to live in the family of God. How beautiful is that? That I get a smiling father down on me that doesn't just say, all right, son, I'll always forgive you. I'll always forgive you. I'll always forgive you. Can you imagine the prodigal son coming home after the party, the slaughtered lamb and the amazing, the lamb and the jacket. I speak too fast when I get excited. Can you imagine the prodigal son being like, all right, dad, that was an awesome party. Now, you know what? Those pigs weren't that bad. I mean, that slop. You kind of stunk at the beginning, but you get over it. Like, like seriously? The dad would be like, no, you've missed it. You might have received it once, but don't assume that that now is where you fall. That's not your standard. There's even more beyond that. I think Paul's trying to get to that when he shares in verse 17 through 19. 
So he starts off with that comparison. We don't want to compare. We don't presume the gospel requires a standard to get in, to be received, to be uh, acknowledged, to be justified. But we also don't want to assume that that same level of righteousness or of uh, acceptability is going to then stagnate. I think that's what he says, but in verse 17, if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Does, does his sacrifice mean that we get to keep being forgiven? Well, of course, but don't assume that. Don't stay there. Don't stagnate there. Then he says, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. If I got the gospel, if I received forgiveness or redemption or justification, you fill in the blank for your own experience of faith. If I receive that, and then that's my default, if I uh, rebuild what I tore down in accepting Christ, if I try to go back to my old ways of doing things, my old ways of valuing myself, my old ruts of identity, my old trying to prove it or comparing or you fill in the blank. If I try to go back there, I'm missing the glories and the expanding beauties of the gospel. And in our culture, we see around us, even in our Christian cultures, we see many, many examples where I've stayed there and I've worked towards that, the fruit of having a, a gospel-driven life or we find the problems area and we decide that we can cope with those, we find better and more efficient ways of coping, or we, we see that there's fruit to be had in showing up and in smiling at the right times and putting on one of those fake facades that means I'm okay, rather than the faithful obedience that might not mean everything's okay all the time. It might mean I'm in a hard place right now. It might mean I'm not getting this and I want to be more faithful. It doesn't seem easy. And I know some of you well enough to know the life of a believer, even in America in 2022, is not always roses and sunshine. Some of us experience the expanding grace of the gospel in hard seasons. Some of us get that while we're watching spouses deal with cancer or watching uh, elderly parents or mothers and fathers-in-law wrestle through hard things, forgetting who they are and forgetting who you are. Some of us experience that in, in careers that seem like they're plateauing, they're only going to go downhill and I don't know how I can get out of this. Some of us experience that in situations with our kids where it doesn't seem like things are getting better. Where is God going to show up and be at work here? The problems with chasing the blessings is that sometimes we don't recognize the ways that God is refining us because we've painted on shiny veneers in our fruit. And sometimes we forget that God works through suffering. He's faithful. He's gracious. And we are a community that together get to bear one another's burdens, not leave a brother or sister in that same rut, that same standard. Yes, forgiveness is wonderful. It's rich. It's free. And you get to be a child of God. 
You're adopted. Your identity is secure. Lastly, I think once we maybe wrap our brains a little more around how we don't want to presume the gospel, we don't want to assume the gospel, I think this is our biggest and hardest to see problem is that we also don't want to consume the gospel. Uh, Kids, if this is helpful, or those of us that have a hard time taking notes, especially when you're looking down at the bulletin and like somebody else's sermon is there. I don't know what the problem is there. I apologize. If it helps kids, presume, assume, and consume all end in me. The easy lesson is the gospel doesn't end in me. The beauty of the gift of the gospel is it takes wherever I am, whoever I believe me to be, whatever value or works or uh, standard I think I can achieve, it overshadows that with the most beautiful shadow of the cross. And it takes me and says, Christ is now in me. Christ lives in you. You're united to him. And the value that you have It's not a big gummy eraser that erases me. It says now Christ is in you. Your background and your experience, those things that you need to be forgiven for, those are redeemed, not erased. And we get to see the beauty of Christ put on display in and through me. So the danger of consuming the gospel is that we turn... Christ into an object, some stuff, and all the blessings are just nice goodies that we get along with that. And rather than receiving a gift, we've earned a person or a a bunch of collection of material goods. And we in the West don't understand how much consumerism has snuck into our mentalities our kind of day-to-day operating function of materialism that, that puts me in the center of a consumer, not bashing on capitalism, but that mindset we want to impart or we want to bring into the, the truth, the beauty of receiving a gift that is the grace of Christ. So when Paul here says, if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For the, through the law, I died to the law that I might live to God. And then he parallels that from 19. The law helped me die. Through the law, I died to myself because I realized I can't ever do it. I can't do enough. I can't uh, be efficient enough. I can't be good enough. I can't be smart enough. I can't be holy enough. But I died to that law so that I can live to God. And then the parallel in in verse 20, I've been crucified with Christ, and Christ's crucifixion was him meeting the perfect standard of the law and then giving that to you and me. His achievement, his work, his righteousness achieved in and through the cross, through his own death, it paid for my sin, but then it gives me his perfect righteousness. So that it's not a thing to earn or to buy or to manipulate or to just take and say, oh, that was nice. Now this will make me and my 
version of life even better. I, I think sometimes we think of Christianity or even the gospel, this, this Jesus idea, as like in life, it's kind of like trading up hobbies. You know, I had this one hobby and I did it on the weekends. It was, you know, it's kind of cool. Met some cool people, had some cool interactions. And I heard about this guy and he did way better. So I want better. So I'll trade this kind of hobby I have for this other hobby. And if it makes my life better, if it like makes it more comfortable, convenient, efficient, smiley, then that's a win. Jesus doesn't give us a, a better Jesus jersey to play in the game of life. He, he doesn't give us better coping mechanisms to more effectively or f- efficiently realize self-actualization or any, climb the, any ladder. That's not the Jesus project. It's not his life for you. He gave his life so that you can have rich life in him and put him on display. There's an incredible, another catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism, the very first question asks, to whom do I belong? Who's, whose am I? Am I my own? Am I my own person? And our society is big, bold, neon signs glaring at us. Yes, and better than that, you're your own consumer. You get to decide how you want to live and be comfortable and flourish and vacation and all of these things. And again, we're really good at doing that. We're really good at consuming even to the point where we think it, it gives our hearts what we crave. I almost long for the day when that is found out to be as empty as it really is when we've collected so much stuff and our garages are overflowing and there are no more storage units to be had, where we can realize the stuff isn't what life is about. Again, please don't hear me bashing on consumerism or capitalism. It's not happiness. And especially when we bring that mindset that we're maybe not really aware of how deeply it's permeated our thinking, when we bring that mindset to the gospel and we say, this Jesus figure is really a better, more efficient way of getting the things in life that I want. A quicker means to a happier ends. If we consume the gospel, we turn redemption into something that's just another benefit that makes my life happier able to be something earned or that I can manipulate or transact. Okay, God, I'll do more of this for you. You do more of this for me. And we hear lots of people that have some of that in their testimony of God showed up and he changed me and I promised I would never do this again. Well, maybe. But you've just turned Jesus into an ATM dispensing machine. If you do this, he'll promise to do this. And Yes, he's faithful and he's true. But he's not a consumable. So where does this get us? How does this help us see the, the joys, the deep truths of the gospel more clearly? I think it lands where Paul lands in verse 20, that when I've been crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who live. Again, the gospel doesn't gummy erase me. 
It doesn't say you're out of the picture forever. The gospel says, but Christ who lives in me. The gospel didn't, doesn't say, I, didn't, I, I just traded up in life. I just got a little bit better version of me. I just figured out how I can do me. You do you better. And we'll put you know, some Jesus frosting on, on the, the life that you have. Paul says, the life I now live, I live in the flesh. I'm really here. I'm not just turned into some spiritual you know, superpower. Not just the force working through me. But the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I think that's the beauty of the gospel. That you receive Christ, you no longer belong to yourself. You don't have to strive for yourself. You don't have to achieve or perform for yourself. All the ways that we've set up this, this pattern of doing and earning in order to be, whether it's to be more comfortable in myself or to be more comfortable with life or to be more uh, approved of by others, all of that is exploded in Jesus when he says, you belong now body and soul in life and in death to your faithful Savior. He's given up everything to be everything for you. And so your life can now be found you can find everything in him. I pray, I hope, I deeply desire for that to be not just something that's good and right and true for you. But as you realize that, as you get to see that expanded, as you connect with other people, in a few minutes we're going to hear a testimony of how that's worked in a young lady's life. As you get to put that on display in the world around us, as you get to see that link that sometimes tiny, meager, small link in the chain. You think, am I actually doing anything that's going to impact anybody? You get to see God put that on display, his glory, the power of Christ at work in your life. The people around us are going, that's crazy talk, but it's amazing. That's the glory of Christ. This is not just more about me or amplify that times us. It's not just way to go team. It's Christ on display. So we no, longer, we no longer need to presume. We don't need to settle back and just assume that that's how things were, that's how things are going to be. And we have to work, strive, struggle, not to see the gospel as another consumable but we get to trust and obey. We get to receive and believe. We get to see the incredible grace of Christ dwelling richly. It's going to uncover some hard and difficult stuff in our hearts. And there's grace for that. That's how the, the beauty of grace is that doesn't gloss over all the mess. It lets truth into reality and says, now you can see what's really hurting there so that you can see how grace, how Christ is going to uproot that and restore it and redeem it and revive it and allow life to actually thrive, not just cope. So that at the end of the day, we can all pray this. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. More and more faith, expanding faith, based on a glorious grace 
and all in the Son of God who loved me, who loved you and gave himself for you. Let's pray. God, I pray as you use this passage and maybe even use this sermon to show people your incredible grace and your incredible glory, I pray that this is a beautiful thing that you have used our past to put Christ on display. So teach us how this expanding gospel, how we can know more of you and see more of you in your word and in the world around us, how we can enjoy that and get to know more of your incredible grace. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.